If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. Hi, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell, one of the lead authors of Crush Step 1. Before we get started with this podcast episode, I want to tell you about a new project I'm working on called Med Prep to Go. It's a free online and audio USMLE question bank for step one and step two. And the goal of this project is to reduce the cost of medical education by developing a really high quality question bank that will be free and by putting it in audio format to give you some time back in your day. It's still relatively early in this project and we are actively adding new questions to the question banks and releasing additional episodes of our podcast. I'd like to encourage you to go check it out at medpreptogo.com. And if you want to get involved and learn how to write USMLE-style questions and contribute to this question bank, you can do that through the website at medpreptogo.com, or you can email me directly at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com. And if you decide to get involved with learning how to write questions, we'll make sure you get some really good directions and mentorship through the process so that it's actually a really good learning experience for you and something that you can add to your CV. So I look forward to working with you. Please go check that out and we'll get started with this episode of the podcast. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step One, the ultimate USMLE Step One review along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step One podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high yield and high quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. Anatomy, kidneys, the kidneys are paired, bean-shaped retroperitoneal organs, each with an adrenal gland located on the upper pole. See figure 15 a The outermost part of the kidney is the cortex, and the inner part is the medulla. See figure 15 b Each kidney is perfused by a renal artery, which branches off the aorta. Both renal arteries further branch into smaller vessels to perfuse the glomeruli site of blood filtration in each nephron. Each glomerulus has an afferent and efferent arteriole, which modulate blood flow and glomerular filtration pressure. After the glomeruli and efferent arteriole, the blood flows into the peritubular capillaries, sites which secretion and reabsorption of various substances occur. These capillaries run down the nephron into the medulla. Because the medulla is the last to be perfused, it has the lowest oxygen tension and is most susceptible to hypoxia and hypoxic injury. These paratubular capillaries also serve an endocrine role, mediating release of erythropoietin, EPO, when local hypoxia occurs to stimulate red blood cell production. The kidneys are drained by renal veins that drain into the inferior vena cava, IVC. Because the IVC is on the right side, the left renal vein is longer and therefore preferred for transplantation, more plumbing to work with. 
Of note, the left gonadal vein drains into the left renal vein, as opposed to the right gonadal vein, which drains directly into the IVC. Because the renal vein is of smaller caliber compared to the IVC, higher resistance, resistance is proportional to 1 over R to the 4th, there is greater potential for venous congestion in the left gonadal vein. Hence, greater risk for testicular varicoceles on the left side compared with the right side. For this reason, right-sided varicoceles should always raise suspicion of malignant invasion into the venous system, whereas left-sided varicoceles are usually benign. Urinary Collecting System The renal pelvis has projections into the kidney to facilitate urine collection. The smallest projections are termed minor calyces, with groups of them joining together to become major calyces. The area where the minor calyx interfaces with the renal medulla is called the renal papilla. This becomes important in renal papillary necrosis. The major calyces then unite to become the renal pelvis, which drains into the ureter. The ureters drain urine from the renal pelvis into the bladder for storage. See figure 15, 1c. Sites of relative constriction, in which obstruction of urine flow can easily occur. For example, limiting kidney stone passage. 1. The ureteropelvic junction, the UPJ, where the renal pelvis meets the ureter. 2. Pelvic inlet, where the ureter crosses over and is mildly compressed by the iliac arteries. And 3. The ureterovesical junction, the UVJ, where the ureters insert into the bladder. In other words, stones can get stuck where the ureter starts, where it enters the pelvis, or where the ureter ends. The ureters pass under the uterine artery in females and the vas deferens in males. A mnemonic, water, meaning ureters, under the bridge, meaning the uterine artery or vas deferens. This is important to know during surgery to ensure the ureters are not damaged. It should be intuitive that the ureters are under these structures because the kidneys are retroperitoneal. Physiology, overview and terminology. The kidneys have important functions. Endocrine. First, synthesizes erythropoietin to stimulate red blood cell production. Second, converts 25-OH high vitamin D into its active form 125-OH2 vitamin D by the 1-alpha hydroxylase enzyme located in the proximal tubule. And third, secretes the enzyme renin into circulation to start the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone, or RAA, axis to increase blood pressure. Homeostatic. First, it eliminates waste products and water as urine, and second, it controls the blood pH and electrolyte concentrations and volume status. There are some terms that must be covered before an in-depth discussion of renal physiology can occur. Familiarize yourself with these before moving forward. Filtration. When a substance in question passively travels into Bowman's space, from the glomerular capillary, which takes place within the glomerulus, the kidneys filter. Secretion, when a substance is actively delivered into the nephron from the paratubular capillaries located downstream from the glomerulus. Reabsorption, 
when a substance is returned into the paratubular capillaries from the nephron, clearance of substance X into the urine, when the total plasma volume is completely cleared of substance X per unit time, in essence in milliliters per minute, where Cx is the clearance of substance X and Px is the plasma concentration of X and Ux is the urine concentration of X and V is the urine flow rate. The total plasma volume that is completely cleared of substance X per unit time in milliliters per minute, where Cx is the clearance of substance X, Px is the plasma concentration of X, Ux is the urine concentration of X, and V is the urine flow rate. A high amount of X in the urine, meaning high urine concentration of X, Ux, and or a high urine flow rate, V, gives a large numerator, in association with a low plasma concentration of X, or Px. There is not much left to excrete, or a small denominator, indicating a high clearance. Glomerular filtration rate. The amount of fluid being filtered through the glomerulus per unit time is the glomerular filtration rate, or GFR. It is normally 100 to 120 milliliters per minute, but is significantly reduced in renal failure. Clearance of inulin, not to be confused with insulin, is used to calculate GFR because it is a substance that is only filtered through the glomerulus and not significantly secreted or reabsorbed, thus providing a good estimate of the capacity of the glomerulus for filtration. Because infusing patients with inulin is unwieldy in the real world, creatinine, the breakdown product of creatine phosphate used as a phosphate source by muscle to quickly regenerate adenosine triphosphate or ATP when needed, which is always present in the blood, is used as an endogenous surrogate for GFR. There are formulas that can approximate GFR based on creatinine levels, where higher creatinine levels in the blood equals a lower GFR because the creatinine is not being removed and is building up. These formulas include GFR equals C, i.e. the clearance of inulin, which is the urine concentration of inulin times the urine flow rate over P of inulin. Clearance of substance X is the glomerular filtration of substance X plus the renal tubular secretion of substance X into the urinary space minus the renal tubular reabsorption of substance X back into circulation. When substance X is creatinine, the latter two processes are relatively small and presumed negligible. Hence, creatinine clearance is traditionally used as an estimate of so-called pure glomerular filtration. Hence the following. When Cx is greater than GFR, this indicates that more of a substance got into the urine by filtration alone, and therefore there was net tubular secretion of the substance as well. When Cx is less than GFR, this indicates that less of the substance got into the urine than expected from filtration, therefore there was a net tubular reabsorption of the substance as well. But when Cx is equal to GFR, 
exactly the same amount of substance got into the urine as was expected from filtration. This either means there was no secretion or reabsorption occurred, or that they occurred to the same extent. In essence, there's no net secretion or reabsorption that occurred. Effective renal plasma flow, or ERPF, ERPF estimates the total amount of plasma flowing through the kidney based on the clearance of para-aminohypuric acid, or PAH. This substance is used because it has an incredibly high clearance. It is filtered at the glomerulus and secreted by the proximal tubule of the kidney. Essentially, 100% of the PAH is cleared from the bloodstream into the urine by these two processes. Renal plasma flow is important because the glomeruli filter plasma. Red blood cells are normally too big to be filtered through the glomerular membrane unless there is a disease process going on, such as nephritic syndromes, can result in passage of blood through the glomeruli. The formula for ERPF is equal to the C of PAH, which is the same thing as the U of PAH times V over the P of PAH. Renal blood flow, or RBF. Related to renal plasma flow, RPF, because plasma is a component of blood, RBF also takes into account the red blood cells that are flowing through. Knowing the plasma flow makes it easy to convert based on the hematocrit, or the HCT, which is the percentage of the blood that is RBCs. Therefore, RBF is equal to RPF over 1 minus the hematocrit. Logically, this makes sense, because if there were no red blood cells in the blood, or the hematocrit was equal to zero, it would all be plasma, and then the RBF would be exactly the same as the RPF. With a normal hematocrit, for example 45% or 0.45, the RBF would be higher than the RPF because it is taking into account red blood cells and plasma, which has a larger volume than just plasma alone. Filtration fraction. Representing the percentage of plasma going through the glomerulus that actually passes into the nephron, normally FF is approximately 20%. Therefore, it is a simple fraction of how much is put into the nephron through the glomerulus, or the GFR, divided by all the plasma that went through the glomerulus, or the RPF. So the formula is FF is equal to the GFR over the RPF. You should know the formulas provided in the section for step 1, and should know which compounds are used to calculate which values. For example, inulin and Creatinine are used to calculate clearance, and PAH is used to calculate RBF. The glomerulus and filtration. The glomerulus is an interface between the blood and the nephron. The goal of the glomerulus is to prevent cells and proteins in the blood from entering the nephron while still allowing filtration of plasma to occur, creating a plasma ultrafiltrate composed of electrolytes and low molecular weight solutes. The glomerulus has a specialized filtration barrier that helps ensure minimal loss of larger solutes with filtration, referencing figure 15.3. From the blood into Bowman space, these barriers in order are as follows. 1. Fenestrated capillary endothelium. 
Fenestrations are holes in the capillary endothelium that act as a size barrier preventing cells from entering Bowman space. 2. Basement membrane. The basement membrane has three layers. The lamina rara interna, interna meaning internal or nearest the capillary, lamina densa, and the lamina rara externa, externa meaning external. The membrane is heavily negatively charged because of the presence of heparin sulfate, not to be confused with heparin, an anticoagulant. Because almost all the blood proteins are negatively charged, this acts as a charge barrier to help prevent proteins from being filtered into Bowman's space. Third is podocytes. On the epithelium of Bowman space, the podocytes are attached to the basement membrane by means of foot processes, which have small slits in them that are also coated in the heparin sulfate to help further ensure that no proteins are filtered. The charge barrier is lost in nephrotic syndrome, allowing large proteins such as albumin and immunoglobulins to be filtered and lost in the urine. The mnemonic Nephrotic rhymes with oncotic. Proteins produce oncotic pressure in the glomerular and peritubular capillaries, and severe loss of protein in the urine is observed in nephrotic syndromes. Think also of the O found in both protein and nephrotic, but not in nephritic. Inflammation allows entire cells to pass through, Red blood cells can be filtered and lost in the urine, leading to a nephritic syndrome. These syndromes will be covered later in the pathology section. The nephrons can only filter what the glomerulus is able to deliver. The blood that flows through the renal arteries eventually makes it to the glomeruli, first encountering the afferent arteriole, then the glomerular capillaries, and exiting out the efferent arteriole. The afferent arteriole comes before the efferent arteriole A before E, just like the alphabet, or A for arriving and E for exiting, into the peritubular capillaries, which provide oxygen to the nephron and are conduits for reabsorption and secretion, referencing figure 15.4. The fluid that passes through the glomerular capillaries goes into Bowman's space and subsequently the nephron. Just like all capillary beds, the driving forces for fluid moving out of the capillary are the starling forces of oncotic and hydrostatic pressure from the blood in the capillary bed and the interstitium surrounding the capillary bed. As fluid moves from the afferent arteriole to the efferent arteriole, fluid, not protein, is pushed into Bowman's space, which would normally reduce the hydrostatic pressure as fluid leaves the capillaries. However, Glomerular capillary hydrostatic pressure is constant along the entire capillary bed, which is unique to the glomerular capillaries, because of vasoconstriction of the efferent arteriole acting as a dam that backs up pressure into the glomerulus. Because fluid is leaving, and not protein, the glomerular capillary oncotic pressure will increase along the capillary bed until forces reach equilibrium. Therefore, alterations in any of the starling forces will change the glomerular filtration rate, which can be seen in Table 15.1. A formula can be established for GFR, which is equal to Kf of the forces favoring filtration minus the forces 
preventing filtration, which is equal to Kf times PGC minus PiGC plus PBS, where Kf is the filtration coefficient, PGC is the hydrostatic pressure and the glomerular capillaries pushing fluid into Bowman space, and PiGC is the oncotic pressure in the glomerular capillaries, or the osmotic gradient pulling fluid back into the glomerular capillaries, and PBS is the hydrostatic pressure in the Bowman space, and PiBS is the oncotic pressure in the Bowman space, omitted because proteins are not filtered and this is normally zero. Please note the following. PGC increases with the efferent arterial vasoconstriction and the afferent arterial vasodilation and decreases with efferent arterial vasodilation and afferent arterial vasoconstriction. The PIGC decreases with protein wasting in malnutrition or nephrotic syndrome. The PBS increases with urinary obstruction or back pressure from obstruction going into Bowman space, and the PIBS increases with nephrotic syndrome because proteins now leak into Bowman space. Changes in starling forces may also alter the filtration fraction. Higher glomerular capillary hydrostatic pressures, for example with efferent arteriolar constriction, will push more on plasma into Bowman space, and a higher filtration fraction will result. Lower glomerular capillary oncotic pressures, for example, hypoalbuminemia, will result in capillaries having less pull to keep fluid in and will result in higher filtration fractions because a larger proportion of plasma is now going into Bowman space. The opposite conditions, efferent vasodilation and high capillary oncotic pressure, will cause a lower filtration fraction. Changes in the afferent arterial do not modify filtration fraction because it is the before the glomerular capillary bed, see figure 15.5a. Dilation of the afferent arterial, for example, increases plasma flow and GFR to the same degree, so the fraction of plasma is unchanged, where the numerator and denominator increase the same. Angiotensin 2, AT2. Part of the RAA axis, AT2 acts as a vasoconstrictor that the body uses to maintain blood pressure when the patient becomes hypotensive. By preferentially constricting the efferent arterial, it increases glomerular pressure, acting as a dam preventing blood exiting the glomerulus and, therefore, attempts to maintain the GFR in spite of hypotension. See figure 15.5b. With high levels of AT2, for example in severe hypotension, the afferent arterial will constrict as well, which lowers the GFR because blood is needed elsewhere, for example the brain. Prostaglandins. Prostaglandins vasodilate the afferent arterial, increasing renal plasma flow. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, prevent prostaglandin synthesis and in turn cause decreased renal plasma flow. In hypotensive or hypovolemic patients who already have low blood flow to the kidneys, taking NSAIDs can further cut off blood supply to the kidney, leading to ischemic damage. Remember that when a substance is filtered, it does not necessarily end up in the urine, it can be reabsorbed into the bloodstream during passage through the nephron. Similarly, 
When a substance is not filtered, it can still end up in the urine as it can be secreted into the nephron from the bloodstream. The nephron and its segments. See figure 15.6 for an overview of the nephron. Functions of the proximal tubule. The proximal tubule reabsorbs all glucose and amino acids if present at normal levels. However, high levels can overwhelm the reabsorptive capacity of these transporters, leading to the presence of glucose in the urine, glucosuria, at the blood glucose levels greater than 200 mg per deciliter. All of the transporters are fully saturated at 350 mg per deciliter. Or protein in the urine, or proteinuria with large amounts of filtered protein, as in nephrotic syndrome. Another function of the proximal tubule is that it resorbs sodium into the blood via the sodium proton exchanger, with the proton being secreted into the lumen of the tubule in exchange. This proton will eventually be recycled, put back into the proximal tubule cell, and secreted again into the lumen. Reference figure 15.7 in the following fashion. First, the sodium proton exchanger secretes the proton into the lumen of the proximal commule tubule to reabsorb sodium. Second, this proton combines with bicarbonate to make H2CO3. Third, the H2CO3 becomes H2O and CO2, catalyzed by the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors such as acetazolamide block this step, shutting down this recycling. Fourth, the CO2, a freely diffusible gas, diffuses back into the cell. And then, fifth, again, the carbonic anhydrase and the CO2, along with the H2O, become H2CO3, breaking down into a proton plus HCO3-. CO3- is pumped into the paratubular capillaries, and the proton is put back into the tubular lumen to restart the process. This sodium proton exchanger is upregulated by AT2, as mentioned before. The mechanism of the sodium proton exchanger functions well because the proton secreted into the lumen is buffered, mostly by phosphate, and therefore the proton gradient continues to be favorable by ensuring that the concentration of free proton in the urine remains low. This provides one method of buffering excess acid, for example during respiratory acidosis. The next function of the proximal tubule is that it also gets rid of additional proton and generates additional HCO3- by metabolizing glutamine. One molecule of ammonia, NH3, is removed from glutamine, leaving alpha-ketoglutarate behind, which can enter into the Krebs cycle and be metabolized into CO2 and water. The CO2 and H2O can be changed into HCO3- and a proton by carbonic anhydrase activity. This proton can be secreted into the lumen with NH3, creating NH4+. The bicarbonate left over is reabsorbed into the bloodstream, and in effect, a new HCO3- is generated and the ammonium will be excreted, referencing figure 15.8. An additional function of the proximal tubule is to reabsorb phosphate. The parathyroid hormone, or PTH, inhibits this process. Hence, PTH promotes phosphaturia. See Chapter 9. 
Additionally, the proximal tubule absorbs and secretes organic cations and anions, such as uric acid and lactic acid. Furthermore, the proximal tubule converts vitamin D into its active form, calcitriol, or rather 1,25-dihydroxycholecalciferol. This enzyme, 1-alpha-hydroxylase, adds a hydroxyl group to the position 1 of 25-OH vitamin D, producing 1,25-OH2 vitamin D. This activity is upregulated by PTH. Calcium homeostasis is covered in detail in Chapter 9. Thin Loop of Henle The descending thin limb of the loop of Henle is highly permeable to water whereas the ascending limb is permeable to solutes. There is an osmotic gradient, or corticopapillary gradient, where the medulla has a much higher osmolarity of interstitial fluid than the cortical area. The thin loop of Henle takes advantage of this because water and solutes are permeable in this part of the nephron, the part of the nephron furthest towards the medulla. It uses a countercurrent multiplication system to generate and maintain this gradient. The function of the thin loop of Henle. The net effect of the thin loop of Henle is that more solutes are reabsorbed or moved out of the tubular lumen than water because the ascending limb is permeable to solutes, leading to an hypoosmotic fluid generation. The thick ascending loop of Henle. The thick ascending loop of Henle uses NKCC2, meaning sodium, potassium, chloride, and chloride, co-transporter. This is inhibited by loop diuretics, as referenced in figure 15.9. This ATP-driven pump pumps two cations, sodium and potassium, and two anions, both of the chlorides, into the thick ascending limb cell but the potassium can leak back into the lumen via a potassium channel. See figure 15.9. Therefore, although the pump itself does not directly generate an electrical gradient, it does do so indirectly by allowing a cation back into the tubular lumen. The sodium and chloride are not reabsorbed into the paratubular capillaries. Because the cation leaked back into the lumen, there is a more net positive voltage in the tubular lumen, aiding in the reabsorption of other cations, especially calcium and magnesium, via the paracellular, or between-cells, route. Shutting off this pump with loop diuretics then causes decreased magnesium and calcium reabsorption as well. Quote, loops lose calcium. Functions of the thick ascending limb. Sodium and potassium are reabsorbed. Potassium leaks back into the filtrate, which produces an electrical gradient. This gradient drives reabsorption of calcium and magnesium. Chloride is secreted into the filtrate. Tight junctions prevent reabsorption of water. Only the concentrations of solutes are modified here. The distal convoluted tubule. The functions of the distal convoluted tubule include Sodium and chloride are reabsorbed here in equal amounts by a sodium chloride co-transporter, which can be inhibited by thiazide diuretics. Reference figure 15.10. 
calcium is reabsorbed from the urine. Because the voltage gradient for reabsorption is only so large, whenever sodium is reabsorbed into this cell, fewer calcium molecules can be reabsorbed, as both cations are fighting for the same electrochemical gradient. Therefore, blockage of the NaCl co-transporter by a thiazide diuretic will allow increased calcium reabsorption, which is the opposite of loop diuretics. The collecting duct. The collecting duct consists of several different cell types, which each have their own functions. Alpha intercalated cells, see figure 15.11a, secrete acid, remember alpha acid, into the lumen using an ATP-dependent pump. Their activity is upregulated by aldosterone. Beta intercalated cells exchange bicarbonate for chloride and reabsorb acid using a pump. The principal cells, see figure 1511b, are responsible for the reabsorption of sodium at the expense of secreting potassium. Their activity is upregulated by aldosterone. The principal cells are the final place in the nephron at which sodium and potassium balance can be adjusted before excretion. Principal cells, i.e. by a high-salt diet, causes this excess sodium to be reabsorbed from the lumen of the nephron into the principal cell through the epithelial sodium channel because of an increased electrochemical gradient, which is an increased difference in sodium concentration from tubular lumen to distal convoluted tubule cell. This sodium is subsequently pumped into the blood via the sodium-potassium ATPase, but recall that this pumps sodium out and potassium in. Therefore, the more sodium is pumped out, the more potassium is moved into the principal cell. This potassium then flows through the potassium channel into the tubular lumen with eventual excretion into the urine. Aldosterone upregulates this. See the discussion of the RAA axis. In an effort to increase intravascular volume by reabsorbing more sodium, but in the process it causes potassium secretion and also stimulates proton secretion in the alpha-intercalated cells. The collecting duct also has an important effect on water balance through the effect of antidiuretic hormone, or ADH, which promotes increased water resorption. Diuretics increase urine output. Antidiuretic hormone decreases it by reabsorbing water. Increased water reabsorption leads to concentrated urine, the function of ADH and its mechanism of action are covered later. See antidiuretic hormone and free water clearance. Section 2. Body Fluid Compartments and Maintenance The human body, by weight, is mostly water. This water is present inside the cells, intracellular, and outside the cells, or extracellular. The 60-40-20 rule is that 60% of an average person's body weight is water, and two-thirds, or 40% of the body weight, of that water in the intracellular fluid, and one-third, or 20% of the body weight, in the extracellular fluid. The extracellular compartment is divided into plasma, which is intravascular, i.e. in the bloodstream, and the interstitial fluid, the area between the cells and capillary beds. Of the extracellular fluid, 25% is plasma volume and 75% is interstitial volume. See figure 15, 12. 
total body weight. Represents all fluid compartments, intracellular plus extracellular compartments, and can be measured using deuterated water, D2O, which is water with deuterium hydrogen with an extra neutron taking the place of the hydrogen atoms, because water will come up to equilibrium with the rest of the body. Intracellular fluid, ICF, two-thirds of the total body water. It is impossible to measure directly because you cannot measure the amount of water inside each cell. Therefore, measurement of this is indirect by taking the total body water and subtracting the extracellular water, leaving you with only intracellular water. The major cation here is potassium, and the major anion is phosphate. Extracellular fluid, ECF, one-third of total body water. This represents plasma volume and interstitial volume together, because both of these compartments are outside the cells. ECF can be measured by using sugars that cannot be metabolized by the body, such as mannitol or inulin. These sugars cannot get into the cells, but can go into plasma and the interstitial compartment. The major cation in the extracellular compartment is sodium, because cells have sodium-potassium ATPases that continually pump sodium out of their cells in exchange for pumping potassium into cells. Plasma volume, 25% of the ECF. This contains albumin, the major anion of plasma, which also provides oncotic pressure to keep fluid inside the vessels. Therefore, radioactive albumin can measure the plasma volume, or Evans blue, a blue dye that attaches strongly to albumin. Interstitial fluid, 75% of the ECF. Just like plasma, except no plasma proteins or cells because the capillaries do not normally permit their passage. Cannot be measured directly, but if the ECF and plasma are known, then the ECF minus the plasma volume must be the interstitial volume. The normal osmolarity of these compartments is 290 milliosmoles per liter. The osmolarity of the intracellular and extracellular compartments should be identical because any changes will lead to osmotic water shifts to balance the osmolarities. For example, if someone urinates extremely hypotonic fluid, almost urinating water, as in diabetes insipidus, the ECF will increase in osmolarity because water, but not the solute, is being lost, in effect concentrating the blood. The ICF, now relatively lower in osmolarity, will have more water move from the ICF, lower osmolarity, to the ECF, higher osmolarity. This balances the osmolarity. This is termed osmosis. On the other hand, if a patient has diarrhea, which is isoosmotic to the body's fluids because the colon does not have pumps to generate a gradient and therefore reaches equilibrium within the cells, fluid would be lost but no changes in osmolarity would occur and therefore no fluid shifts. It is important to remember that all changes begin in the ECF because the cells themselves cannot generate water or solute. Therefore, changes do not begin in the ICF, but urinary or gastrointestinal GI losses can take fluid and electrolytes out of the interstitial and plasma volumes, just as drinking or eating sodium will put fluid or sodium into your interstitial or plasma volumes. Because with loss of fluid, or volume contraction, or gain of fluid, which is volume expansion, 
there can also be changes in solute, the concentration of the fluid lost or gained is important. It is important to understand that the osmolarity and volume do not necessarily move together. It is possible to lose volume and have higher or lower osmolarity, just as it is possible to gain volume and have a higher or lower osmolarity. It just depends on the concentration of the fluid lost or gained. Refer to figure 15.13 when analyzing the following scenarios. Loss of isoosmotic fluid, i.e. diarrhea. This will take fluid just from the ECF with no osmotic gradients generated because the ECF osmolarity will be unchanged. Loss of more water than solute, for example, diabetes insipidus or insensible fluid loss, as in sweating or breathing. This will lead to the ECF becoming hyperosmotic with an osmotic gradient now favoring water moving from the IACF of an osmolarity of 290 to the ECF where the osmolarity is greater than 290 until an equilibrium is reached. Loss of more solute than water. For example, adrenal insufficiency leading to decreased ability to reabsorb sodium into the kidney because of a lack of aldosterone. This will cause the ECF to become hypoosmotic, favoring water movement from the ECF, whose osmolarity is less than 290, to the ICF, where the osmolarity is still 290, until an equilibrium is reached. Gain of isoosmotic fluid. For example, giving 0.9% normal saline intravenous infusion, this will lead to ECF expansion with no osmotic gradient because the ECF will still be 290 milliequivalents per liter. Gain of more solute than water, for example, 3% normal saline IV infusion. This will cause the ECF to be hyperosmotic, leading to more water moving from the ICF to the ECF until equilibrium is reached. Gain of less solute than water, for example, syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, or SIADH, or increased ADH secretion, leading to abnormally high amounts of water reabsorption from the kidney. This will cause the ECF to become hypoosmotic, leading to water moving into the ICF until equilibrium is reached. Renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis The RAA axis plays a critical role in the following. Maintenance of blood pressure, altering urinary sodium concentration, and altering renal blood flow parameters. The RAA axis is initially triggered when the juxtaglomerular apparatus, or JG cells, in the afferent arterial of the kidney sense a decrease in perfusion, hypovolemia, hypotension. See figure 15.14 when referring to the following explanation of the axis pathway. First, the JG cells, in response to decreased blood flow or decreased stretch of the afferent arterial, secrete the proteolytic enzyme renin into the bloodstream. Another important stimulus for renin includes the sympathetic outflow via the stimulation of the beta-1 adrenergic receptors on the JG cells. Second, renin cleaves angiotensinogen in the bloodstream, which is produced by the liver, into angiotensin 1. Third, Angiotensin 1 is converted into angiotensin 2 by the angiotensin-converting enzyme known as ACE, which is mostly found in the pulmonary endothelium. Fourth, 
Angiotensin II is a potent vasoconstrictor, so it increases the blood pressure by increasing systemic vascular resistance. It also preferentially constricts the efferent arteriole in the kidney to maintain GFR in low blood pressure states by increasing lamellar capillary hydrostatic pressures. In addition, it increases the activity of the sodium-potassium exchanger in the proximal tubule of the nephron to increase sodium and water reabsorption leading to increased blood pressure. Finally, it is a potent dipsogen, meaning it stimulates thirst to aid in replenishing intravascular volume. Fifth, angiotensin II stimulates the release of the hormone aldosterone from the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal gland cortex. Six, aldosterone acts on the distal tubules to increase sodium reabsorption at the expense of potassium excretion. When more sodium is reabsorbed, water is also reabsorbed to maintain chemical gradients. The end result is expanded blood volume and increased blood pressure. Because aldosterone is a steroid hormone, it works by entering the nucleus and increasing transcription of new sodium channels on the luminal side, and the sodium-potassium ATPase pumps on the basolateral side to increase in reclaiming sodium. This means there is a lag on the order of hours before aldosterone can have an effect because it takes time to make the new proteins. Antidiuretic hormone and free water clearance. Antidiuretic hormone, the no P hormone. Just as the diuretic medication class causes urination, antidiuretic hormone stops it. This is released by the posterior pituitary gland. ADH increases water reabsorption, leading to decreased urine volume and concentrated urine, decreased free water clearance. ADH increases water permeability at the late distal tubule and collecting duct. These cells have V2 receptors and are coupled to the GS signaling pathway, leading to protein kinase A-mediated phosphorylation of proteins with various effects. The primary effects. The primary effects are fusion of preformed aquaporin-2 or AQP2 channels into the cell membrane, leading to increased water permeability, but with no effect on solutes and therefore leading to concentrated urine. The additional effects. Increased water reabsorption would destroy the osmotic gradient in the loop of Henle because it would get overly diluted with all the water moving into the interstitial space. Therefore, ADH also increases the activity of the NKCC2 cotransporter in the thick ascending limb to ensure that more solutes are available to maintain the gradient and increase urea permeability to maintain the gradient further. SIADH, when ADH is secreted abnormally, as well as diabetes insipidus, in which the ability to make ADH is impaired, which is central DI, or the receptor on the kidney does not function correctly, which is nephrogenic DI, are discussed later in the pathology section. ADH is the primary determinant of free water clearance, or CH2O. Free water clearance is simply a way to express if the urine is hypotonic, dilute urine, with respect to plasma, or hypertonic, concentrated urine. Plasma osmolarity is about 290 millilosmilliliters per liter, 
and the urine concentration can range from 50 milliosmoles, which is very hypotonic, very positive free water clearance because the urine is almost all water, to 1,200 milliosmoles per liter, which is very hypertonic with very negative free water clearance. When the free water clearance, or CH2O, is positive, this means that free water is being removed in the urine, and therefore the urine must be more dilute than plasma. Imagine the most extreme case, in which the urine is almost all water at 50 milliosmoles per liter. The kidney must have essentially no ADH activity, and therefore no water in the distal nephron and collecting duct is reabsorbed. Because the urine is essentially all water, free water is being removed from the body. When the free water clearance is negative, this means that the free water is not being removed and the urine must be more concentrated than plasma. The term negative free water clearance may be confusing, just remember that this is essentially free water kept by the body as opposed to free water cleared by the body. When the CH2O is zero, this means that the urine has the exact same osmolarity as plasma. This can occur in renal failure when the kidney loses the ability to concentrate or dilute urine because of extensive damage, or with loop diuretic usage because the thick ascending limb with the NAKCC channels is the site of dilution of the filtrate. Remember that the proximal tubule has isoosmotic reabsorption. Because loop diuretics inhibit this channel, it will lead to zero free water generation. Other endocrine functions of the kidneys. The kidney also function as an endocrine organ in addition to the RAA axis described earlier. It plays a role in 1. red blood cell synthesis via erythropoietin production, and 2. the activation of vitamin D via the 1-alpha-hydroxylase enzyme in the proximal tubule of the kidney. Erythropoietin stimulates the hematopoietic stem cells in the bone marrow to increase red blood cell synthesis. The stimulus for this release is hypoxia in the paratubular capillary endothelium. A small amount of erythropoietin can also be created in the liver, a remnant from when it was mostly generated there in utero. Of interest, hepatocellular carcinoma, liver cancer, is associated with erythrocytosis, or excess red blood cell production, for this reason. Vitamin D metabolism and effects are discussed in depth in Chapter 9. The kidney is responsible for the final step of turning vitamin D into its active form, calcitriol, which is 1,25-dihydroxycholecalciferol. By adding the hydroxyl group to the position 1 of the 25-hydroxyvitamin D by 1-alpha-hydroxylase enzyme in the proximal convoluted tubule of the kidney. Active vitamin D increases intestinal absorption of both calcium and phosphate. The activity of 1-alpha-hydroxylase is primarily dependent on PTH. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step One, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters. 